First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Well, good morning and thank you for joining us on this special day of worship today. Uh, These are some crazy days that we are living in right now. Uh, But I'm also thankful that we live in a day where we have the technology to be able to connect uh, in the way that we're doing right now, even when we're not able to meet physically together in the same place. And so just as I do every Sunday morning as we meet together, I want to ask you if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 24. That is the passage that we're going to look at together today in God's Word. Uh, Well, I don't know uh, about you, but uh, I know for us, as we've been mostly staying close to the house uh, with our boys, uh, we've been uh, seeming like watching more movies than we normally do. And it kind of got me thinking about uh, this question. I want to ask you to think about this as well. Uh, Out of all the movies that you've ever seen in your lifetime, uh, which one do you think had the worst ending? I have to tell you, I'm a big Lord of the Rings fan, and I know some Lord of the Rings aficionados are not going to like this, but, but that third movie, The Return of the King, I really didn't like the ending. I felt like uh, it ended three or four times. I kept thinking it was over, and then it would go on for another ten minutes. And again, I know some Lord of the Rings folks are throwing things at their TVs right now, and I hear you. But think about that for you. What, what's the, the movie that you remember that just had the worst ending to it? Uh, you know, we've been working our way through the books of Samuel for the last year. And today, actually this morning, we are coming to the final chapter in First and Second Samuel. And, you know, upon the first reading of this chapter, you might have the same feeling about Second Samuel 24 that I had about the movie The Return of the King. You might feel like this doesn't feel like a great ending to this story. Uh, in some ways, what we've already read, chapter 22 and chapter 23, where we got to hear David's song of praise. Uh, where we got to hear David's last words. That, that felt like a good ending to the, to the story. It seemed like everything had been wrapped up nicely. A, a bow had been put on top of it, and it was a, a neat package. And then here comes this chapter 24 that's kind of tacked on to the end. And, and for us, it kind of feels anticlimactic. Uh, this is actually another story of King David messing up yet again. And what we're going to see in this story is that this mess up, this sin that King David commits ends up affecting the lives of an awful lot of people. And it just feels weird to us. It feels weird that, that a story would end with, with such a negative portrayal of the main character in the story. But I would just contend with you that I believe this is the perfect ending to First and Second Samuel. Because in this story, we're going to see once again today that even though King David was in many ways a wonderful and outstanding man of faith, he was still a broken person. Like us, he was broken. Like us, he needed a savior. And what's really amazing in this final story in 2 Samuel is that this story of a broken king points us so clearly to another broken king who would come for us. Well, let's read how the story starts. Look with me at the first four verses of 2 Samuel 24. It says again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. 
So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and count the people, that I may know the number of the people. Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king desire this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. Before we go any further, let's take a minute and go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you today for your word. Uh, We thank you for how you speak to us. Father, there's so much going on in our world right now. We need to hear, Father God, from you. Uh, Father, today I pray that in your word we would get a picture of your son Jesus, what he did for us at the cross. Father, he is the one that we need to fix our eyes upon. And so God, today help us to see Jesus. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said a moment ago, this message today really is a story about two different broken kings. The first broken king is King David, who was a broken, sinful man like the rest of us. But the second broken king was the Lord Jesus Christ, who was broken for us on the cross when he died for your sin and for my sin. As we walk through this story today, I want to see a couple of contrasts uh, between these two kings. The, The first contrast is this. One king displayed a prideful disobedience, but the other king displayed a humble obedience. We see David's pride right here at the beginning of this story and his decision to take a census of the people. Now that doesn't mean that God is anti-census taking or anything. I know that we're actually in a census year right now uh, here in our own nation. In fact, just yesterday I received in the mail a, a letter about the census. Maybe you did as well. And there's nothing wrong with governments doing that, taking a census of their people. In fact, in the book of Numbers, God commanded that a census be taken of the nation of Israel So it's not censuses in general that are against God's word, but we know that this particular census was not right. Even Joab, David's uh, military general, could see that this was not right. He knew that David's motivation was incorrect. That's why Joab said to David in verse 3, David, I I wish that you would have a hundred times more men than you have right now, but why do you want to do this thing and count all of your soldiers? We're going to come back to that why question in just a minute. But before we even get to why David wanted to take the census, a lot of people get hung up in the very first verse of this story where it says that the Lord was angry with the people of Israel and that he moved David or he incited David to take the census. And so we hear that and we think, well, well, that doesn't seem right. How could God move David to take this census and then turn around and after he takes the census, judge David and judge the people of Israel for doing what God moved him to do? And that's a fair and legitimate question. But there actually is another account of this story in the Bible. It's found over in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. And here's what the first verse says in that account of this story. It says, Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number 
Israel. Wow, so in one place it says that God moved David to take this census, and in another place it says that Satan moved David to take this census. So which one is it? Well, actually both are correct. Both of these statements are found in the Word of God, and really this is the mystery of the way that God's sovereignty works together. And we see this all over the Bible. We see it in the story of Job. We see it in Paul's life. We see it even at the cross that God, who himself does no evil at all, nor does he himself tempt anyone, is able to take even our own sinful actions and and even the evil actions of Satan. He's able to take all of those things and somehow use them for his perfect plan to move forward. That's what he's doing here in this story. And we're going to see by the end this morning that God's plan, what he's doing here in David's life, actually goes far beyond David's life and is still impacting our lives even today. Now back to the question of why David wanted to take this census. Really, we're not told explicitly here in the scriptures the reason why. Uh, But if I had to take an educated guess, uh, I would say in one word, the reason is pride. Uh, Kings like to have big armies. And David wanted to know just how big his army really was. And so despite Joab's protest, uh, David was the king and David got what he wanted. And so in verses 5 through 8, Joab and his other census takers take a a counterclockwise trek around Israel and count up the soldiers. And they come back to Jerusalem. And then in verse 9, he gives the final report to King David. Let's look at that together. It says, Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000 men. If you add those two numbers together, that's a million-man army. Actually, it's a 1.3 million-man army. That's a big enough army for any king to feel pretty good about himself and his chances in battle. But David's pride in taking this census was a sin against the Lord. God had called him not to put his trust in horses or in chariots but in the name of the Lord alone. And friends, pride is not a little deal to our God. It's a big, big deal. In fact, when we look in God's word, pride is the reason why Satan rebelled against God in the first place. Uh, pride is what led Adam and Eve to sin against God in the Garden of Eden. Pride is what gets a hold of David's heart here. And the, and the truth is we all struggle with pride. If we're not willing to admit that we struggle with pride, we probably have a bigger issue with pride than we even realize. And and our proud hearts cause damage. They break things. Our pride breaks other people. It breaks our lives in ways that we see and ways that we do not see. What we see here is a broken king who was a proud king. But I'm so thankful that there is another king who came who was not proud but was perfectly humble. In Philippians 2, Paul tells us that Jesus humbled himself to leave the throne of heaven and to come to earth and to become a man. And then he says this in verse 8 of Philippians chapter 2. He says, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. 
Friends, the reason why any of us can be saved, the reason why any of us can have a relationship with God is because of the humble obedience of King Jesus who was willing to go to that cross and die in our place. Yes, there is a king in this story who displayed a prideful disobedience, but let's thank God together that we have another king who displayed a humble obedience and was willing to go to the cross for each and every one of us. Let's see what happens next in our story. Look with me at verse 10 of 2 Samuel 24. It says, And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time. From Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died. When the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. Like we've said before, David was not a perfect man, but he was a true believer. And before any prophet had to come to David to point his sin out to him, David was already convicted by his conscience and knew that he had sinned against the Lord. And David gives us a great example of what each and every one of us as believers has to do every day. I don't know about you, but I stumble and I fall every single day. And I need to go to the Lord in prayer. And I need to ask Him to forgive me of my sin. The Bible says when we do that, when we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the Lord does forgive David here. But because of the nature of David's sin, because of David's position as the king and the representative of the people, and also because of the sins of the whole nation of Israel that are alluded to back in verse 1, there were going to be some serious consequences because of the sin that David had committed by taking this census. And so the next morning David gets up, but another man gets up as well whose name is Gad. And Gad is a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord sends Gad to go to David and basically to give David a choice, three choices of consequences that he could select from. Uh, you know, when I read that, it, it reminded me of sometimes what I do with my own sons when uh, they get in trouble. Sometimes I'll give them a choice of the consequences that they want. 
Uh, I might say, would you rather uh, go three days without being able to play the Nintendo Switch or go three days without having any candy? Uh, now, I, I can tell you, uh, I don't know about your kids, but uh, my kids will not give up candy for anything. And so I know uh, what uh, consequence they're going to choose. Well, God gives David that same kind of choice here, except for all three of these uh, consequences are horrendous. Uh, God tells David that, uh, first off, he could have seven years of famine. That's what my version reads, seven years of famine. Uh, but I agree with some of the other versions that read three years of famine there. I believe that's the original number in the text. And so the choice is three years of famine, three months of running from your enemies in battle, or three days of a plague. And David basically eliminates that middle option of running from his enemies. And he allows the Lord to choose between famine and plague. And God chooses Plague. But what really struck me here was the way that David communicated his choice back to God. Look again at what it says in verse 14. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. David knows his God so well. He knows that God is holy. And that God has a righteous wrath against his sin and the sin of the nation of Israel. But he also knows that God is merciful. And so he says, don't let me fall into the hands of man. Let me fall into God's hands. Because when I fall into God's hands, I know I'm falling into merciful hands. And so this is the choice that he makes. Now verse 15 hits pretty close to home for us right now. Because it describes how a plague came across the nation from the north of the nation to the south. And how 70,000 men and women in Israel died in a three-day span of time. Obviously right now what is all over the news is another plague called the coronavirus that has tragically already taken the lives of thousands of people around the world. But, you know, there is a big difference between this plague that we read about in the scriptures and the plague that is happening right now in our world. And the biggest difference is we know why this plague took place. Uh, we know that it happened because of David's sin and because of the sin of the nation of Israel. We don't know why this coronavirus is happening right now. We, do, we don't know when other natural disasters strike, the reason for why these things are taking place. And so as believers, we need to be careful about saying, oh, well, this is happening because, and putting something in that blank there, because the reality is we're not God. And only the Lord knows why this is taking place. And so instead of sitting around and trying to figure out why this is happening, we just need to do what God has called us to do when tragic events like this are happening. Now, certainly we need to pray for those who are experiencing the effects of this. Now, the Bible says we need to mourn with those who mourn. Uh, we need to be a light to our community, to look for ways to bless them and to love them and to minister to the needs that are out there right now. Uh, certainly when things like this happen, it also reminds us uh, that our days are frail, uh, that our days are numbered, uh, that we are like the grass that withers away. And we need to be ready, whether the end of our life comes tomorrow or whether it comes a hundred years from now, the Bible tells us that one day we will all meet the Lord. And we need to be ready to meet him whenever that day 
should come. We're going to talk about before we're through this morning how we can know that we're ready to meet the Lord. Here's the contrast that I really want us to see in this part of this story. One king's life, or at least this instance in his life, brought death. But the other king's death brought life. There's really no question that because of his role as king and representative of the people, that David's sin here leads to the death of a lot of people. And yet with King Jesus, it's totally the opposite. That his death brings life. That because of what Jesus went through at the cross, because he suffered and died for our sins, when we believe in him, the Bible says we can have abundant life here and we can have eternal life with the Lord forever. In verses 16 and 17, there's this powerful scene that takes place where the angel of the Lord that has been going all over the land of Israel makes it to the capital city of Jerusalem. And he's, he's hovering over the city. He's about to strike down uh, the inhabitants of the capital city of Jerusalem. And it actually says in the account in the book of Chronicles that the angel of the Lord has a sword uh, in his hand that is drawn and he's holding it out over the city. But David and his men fall down before the Lord. They confess their sin. And David even goes so far to ask the Lord to, to, to take him down and to strike his family down so that no more of the sheep of Israel would have to perish. And God sees what David and his men do. And God hears what David says. And God calls out to the angel of the Lord and tells him to put his sword away that it was enough. Well, let's see what happens next. Look at verse 18 with me and we'll read down to the end of this story. It says, And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming towards him. So Aruna went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Then Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said to buy the threshing floor from you to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Aruna said to David, let my Lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Aruna has given to the king. And Aruna said to the king, may the Lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land, and the plague was withdrawn from Israel." So in verse 18, God sends his prophet Gad uh, back to David a second time. And this time, uh, Gad comes to him to tell him that he needs to go up to the threshing floor where the plague was stopped. And he needs to build an altar there and he needs to make a sacrifice there to the Lord. 
Uh, it says that David needed to go up to the threshing floor because normally thre thre threshing floors were built on a higher elevation uh, where you could throw the wheat up into the air and it would blow away the chaff and separate it from the wheat. And this threshing floor was no different. It was built up above David's house in the city of Jerusalem on a higher elevation on a little hill or a mountain that was called Mount Moriah. Now the text says that it was owned by a man uh, named Aruna the Jebusite. He was a foreigner who had come to believe in the God of Israel. And so David walks onto his property and Aruna comes to meet him and bows down to him, ask him why he had come. And David says, I've come to buy the threshing floor, to build an altar, to give a sacrifice that the plague might be stopped. Now Aruna offers to give to David uh, everything that is necessary for the sacrifice. And yet I love the way that David responds in verse 24. Look at that with me once more. Then the king said to Aruna, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. David says, I won't offer to God something that costs me nothing. You know, that's a good word for us today. Uh, when I read that, it just reminds me that uh, God isn't always going to have me just give out of my abundance or out of my overflow. Now, there's going to be times where the Lord calls me and where the Lord calls you as a follower of Christ to give in a sacrificial way, to give of our money, to give of our time and our talents and even our energy, and to give those things in a way that really reflects a sacrifice that we wouldn't give to the Lord something that cost us nothing. You know, it's a privilege to give to the one who has given everything for you and for me. And really, that's what David's words here remind me of the most. It reminds me of David's greater descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would one day come and give a sacrifice for us on the cross. Here, here's the final contrast that I want us to see between these two kings, between King David and King Jesus. One king made a sacrifice that cost him something. The other king made a sacrifice that cost him everything. You see, Jesus didn't just make a sacrifice. Jesus was the sacrifice. He paid the price, a price that cost him everything. And because of God's great love for us, Jesus was willing to come and to be that sacrifice, to pay what was needed for our sins. In verse 25, the last verse in the story, it says, David went and built that altar and offered that sacrifice and then the story comes to a conclusion. It says the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. Again, I know right now there's a plague that's happening worldwide that's on every single one of our minds here this morning. But you know, spiritually speaking, the Bible says that every single one of us has been infected by a plague called sin. And the mortality rate of that plague is 100%. The Bible says the wages of our sin is death. And there's nothing that we can do to purify ourselves from that plague of sin. We needed a sacrifice. The only way that we can receive mercy from God instead of the judgment that our sins deserve is if a perfect sacrifice was given in our place. Here it was an animal that was sacrificed. 
so that no more folks in Israel needed to die. But all of those sacrifices in the Old Testament were designed to point us to the final sacrifice that was coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, something that really amazes me in this story uh, is that we actually know from other passages in the Bible exactly where this threshing floor was located, where David built his altar and offered his sacrifice. In fact, today it's underneath the golden dome that you see whenever you look at images of the city of Jerusalem. Actually, the Muslim mosque, the Dome of the Rock, is built right on top of this threshing floor where David offered his sacrifice. But a long time before David, again, this spot was known as Mount Moriah. And way back in the Bible, in Genesis chapter 22, one day God called a man named Abraham to take his son Isaac to Mount Moriah and to offer him there as a sacrifice. And so they took a three-day journey, Abraham and Isaac. They walked to Mount Moriah. They walked up this very same mountain to this very same spot where David built an altar in our story. And Abraham built an altar there and laid Isaac, his son, on top of it. He had a knife in his hand. The Bible says he was about to bring his knife down on his son Isaac when God called to him from heaven and told him to stay his hand. And God provided a ram that was caught in the thicket. And Isaac got to get up off the altar and go free because there was a substitute. There was a sacrifice, a ram that was offered in his place. On this very same spot in our story, David offers a sacrifice and the rest of the people of Israel get to go free. We find out in the Bible also that on that very same spot is where David's son Solomon would build his glorious temple. And in that temple, day after day and year after year, sacrifices would be made to cover the sins of God's people. And then one day, many years later, on a day that we know as Good Friday, they led the Lord Jesus just a few hundred yards from that very spot, right outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And they nailed him to a tree. And he suffered there for our sins. On that day, God had a knife in his hand above the cross, the same way that Abraham had one in his hand when Isaac, his son, was on the altar. That day, God had an outdrawn sword in his hand that he was holding over the cross just as the angel of the Lord had a sword in his outstretched hand that he was holding over the city of Jerusalem. But on this day, on that Good Friday, there would be no sacrifice. There would be no substitute. On that day, the sword of God's wrath would fall upon his son. Because every other sacrifice in the Bible was intended to point us to this one final sacrifice, this one final substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice who died for your sins and for mine. Friend, Jesus Christ gave everything for you. But what I want to ask you is, has there ever been a time in your life where you have given everything to him? Has there been a time where you have surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus, where you've asked him to come into your heart and to forgive you of all your sins? If God is speaking to you now and you want to make that decision to trust in Christ, I want to help walk alongside you. I want to ask you, 
if you would send just a brief note to uh, this email address right here, believe at fbcmel.org. Believe at fbcmel.org. Just send us a brief note about what God is doing in your heart and a way that we can contact you. And, and this next week, uh, someone from our church is going to reach out to you. We want to help you as you take your first few steps of following the Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we do thank you that even though we are broken people, that, Father, we have a Savior who is willing to be broken for us, that he went to the cross, that he suffered, that he died to pay for all of our sin. Thank you, Father God, that in these times that are going on in our world right now, that we can know that we are yours, that we can know that we are your children, not because of anything that we have done, but because of your amazing grace that was shown to us at the cross. We thank you for that sacrifice that has paid for our sin, that instead of receiving the judgment that we deserve, Father, we get to receive your mercy and your grace instead. We thank you today for the cross. We thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.